Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by TunnelBear, the simple privacy app that makes it easy to access a more open internet and browse privately. Go to freetunnelbear.com and use it for free. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website blog or online store for you and your ideas. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANADALAND. You'll get 10% off. Jen Gerson, now Western columnist for the National Post. I think. Jen, today we're going to talk about Margaret Wente again. We're going to talk about Mike Duffy again, and we're going to talk about Gian Gameshi again. So let's just skip over this episode altogether. Just wait for the next one, guys. It'll be more interesting. I think we actually have new things to say about all of the above. Welcome back to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thanks for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Jim Harvey, David Clark, Danny Barrett, Ishmael Darrow, Justin... Jorg Messer, Cameron French, and Graham Kirk. Graham, why did you decide to be awesome? Because honestly, I feel without Canon, I'd be still hearing more about the American media companies than the Canadian ones. This episode is also brought to you by Tunnel Bear, 
Jen, you strike me as a person who has very little to hide. Is that true? Do you have terrible secrets? I don't think I've actually lied about anything in 10 years. I have no capacity for it. Well, I've got good news for you. You don't have to be obscuring terrible secrets to want to use a VPN like TunnelBear to tunnel into different countries and use the internet as if you were in a different country. There are many reasons why a person would want to use something like TunnelBear. You might want to avoid price discrimination. I mean, Canadians pay more for things like hotel bookings and flights than if your uh, IP address shows that you're coming from a different country. So you can you can tunnel in through the states or a different country and, and comparison shop. You can use TunnelBear if you're using public Wi-Fi and it's not a secure connection. Use the VPN and you've got a secure connection. Or like maybe you just don't want to be tracked by third parties. You don't want all of these Google ad trackers and uh, social media sites and cookies. Or if you just believe that privacy is a basic right, you don't actually have anything to hide, but you just value your privacy, then use TunnelBear. It is a simple privacy app. It makes it easy to access more open internet and browse privately. It is available for iOS, Android, PC, and Mac. There's a Chrome extension, and you can use it for free. 500 megabytes are free. After that, you pay. You don't have to give a credit card until you hit that. So go to freetunnelbear.com. Jen, this episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. And Squarespace, of course, is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. If you need a website, go to Squarespace. It's fun to click around, actually, and look at these beautifully designed templates. And when you find one that you like, you can start playing with it and making it your website. And you'll see just how easy this thing is to use. They've got great 24-7 support. You don't have to worry about anything when your website is hosted with Squarespace. They take care of all the back end, all the technical stuff. You get a free e-commerce store. You get a URL when you sign up for a year. Your site will look professional regardless of your skill level. No coding is required. It is very intuitive. And if you start your free trial today and use the offer code CANADALAND, you will get 10% off your first purchase if and when you do become a customer. Check it out, squarespace.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Professor Miller, you have reviewed the latest accusations against Margaret Wente. What do you make of them? They're undoubtedly uh, examples of plagiarism. Some are relatively minor, but unmistakable. And others are very, very serious. Uh, Whole passages seem to be copied from other people's work without uh, attribution. I don't see any penalties being handed out for what most people would think is a capital sin in journalism. Do you think that Margaret Wente should be fired? If I were her, I would have no alternative but to offer my resignation. Jen, it's like 2012 all over again. Was that from 2012 or was that from like yesterday? I can't, I don't know. That clip was from As It Happens earlier this week. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so for people who uh, are just catching up with this, it is deja vu and it's astonishing it's the same blogger, Carol Wainio. She says she hasn't even been doing this diligently every week. She stopped reading Margaret Wente, and then she just read a column recently, and it turned out that it was plagiarized. And then uh, Sean Craig, who used to work here at Canada Land, he wrote this up for BuzzFeed, and he went to sort of an expert in these situations, the guy who Wired Magazine turned to when there was the Jonah Lehrer plagiarism scandal, and they said, okay, we, we're going to hire an ex- external third party to go through all of Jonah Lehrer's old stuff to see what else he did. And so uh, Sean went to him for comment and said, what do you think about this? Did Wente plagiarize? And he said, not only did she plagiarize, but I just looked up her recent stuff and I found another case of her plagiarizing. And since then, there have been, I believe, four more new discoveries of borrowed structures, borrowed sentences, borrowed ideas. She's also been found to write borrowed thoughts on books that she's criticizing that she evidently hasn't read, criticizing books based on a TED Talk about the book. Borrowing phrases about like highly scientific discoveries where she's just sort of taking somebody else's analysis of the discovery. So it's piling up. I think that we have to scale down this conversation a little bit and go back to a conversation about what plagiarism is here. Because there are very, very clear examples of plagiarism in, in, in Wente's past and current work where I can look at it, where 99% of all journalists can look at it, and they're like, yeah, that's plagiarism. That's pretty clearly plagiarism. You copy and pasted stuff, for sure. And then we get into this grayer area where, you know, she's kind of rehashing something she gets from the New York Times, but there's no direct copy and pasting. She's, She's filling out columns from other sources. And that, I think, is much, much more nebulous. And I think that we have to be careful when we're accusing Peggy Wente of plagiarism to stick to the stuff that is very, very clearly over the line and not let ourselves get distracted with the stuff that's merely nebulous. Because I think that when we do that, what winds up happening is that the globe kind of has an excuse to circle the wagons around her and say, this is just a mob. This is just a group of disgruntled, jealous young journalists who are out to get our star columnist. And look, they're not picking on stuff that's even plagiarism. We clearly can't take this seriously. We can't take them seriously. So I think that if you want to give the Globe the ability to defend Wente, continue to focus on the stuff that is not clearly plagiarism. Waste your time in the weeds arguing about whether or not her rehashed column that borrowed a concept from a New York Times book review was, was, was plagiarism. I would agree that it's lazy, 
certainly, I mean, in the BuzzFeed article that focused on the New York Times book review, there were some phrases and some analogies that were shared or borrowed from one thing to the other. And I went, really? <laughs> you couldn't come up with your own analogy? But I don't think that quite meets the bar for plagiarism. And, and I think that when we focus on that, we kind of we kind of miss the point here, because it looks like in Wente's body of work, there's plenty of examples of stuff that is unequivocally plagiarism. Look, I take your point that some of these examples are more blatant, brazen examples of thievery than others. But it's not as if she admitted that she basically had plagiarized, though she never used the terminology, but said, okay, I'm not a serial plagiarist. I think anyone will concede, I think the globe has conceded that it has happened numerous times. So now we are in the territory of serial plagiarism. And now we're just, because you want to go there, we're talking about whether every example crosses the line. And the truth of the matter is, Jen, that, there is a sliding scale as to, in an academic environment, what's considered plagiarism in journalism. But why is BuzzFeed and Canada Land and others going through her old work and finding everything that looks like plagiarism? Because the Globe never did that themselves, which is the first thing you're supposed to do when a scandal like this breaks out. As you say, we take this seriously. We have enlisted a third-party external person to audit this person's back catalog, and we're going to deal with this fully and transparently. If they won't do that, we'll drag them kicking and screaming into the sunlight, and we'll do that for them. And I make no apologies for doing that. I'm not suggesting you should apologize. I also completely agree with you. The Globe should have done a thorough investigation of Wente's work. I mean, one of the things that I find very frustrating about the Globe is back in 2012 or 2013, they kind of defended Wente by saying, well, nobody could possibly be writing three columns a week and have them, you know, not be a little rehashed, you know. And yet I'm still looking at the Globe's website and she's still writing three columns a week, as far as I can tell. Sure, they didn't change that. And Craig Silverman asked them, numerous journalists asked them, are you going to go through her old stuff? And they never even responded to those questions. So there's a 100% valid point there. But I'm saying as the people who are outside the Globe and who are examining her work, you don't serve your case by saying, well, she kind of rehashed this thing from the New York Times because... I don't think that that particular BuzzFeed article should have been a fireable offense. There's enough out there that should be damning enough that we should be really focusing on that. And I think that is going to force the globe to respond and change. I would hold them to a higher standard than that. And and I, I could kind of go on because I, I think that there is something interesting in the lesser offenses as well. Many of which she does this weird thing where she mentions the person that she's taking direct language from but doesn't just do the thing of saying, as mentioned in this column by X, and then you just put it in quotation marks, she doesn't even bother to rephrase it beyond like one word. And I find those examples interesting because she's not trying to hide that there is this other source, but she is passing off the language as her own or has been like tremendously sloppy. She just doesn't seem to give a fuck anymore. And I mean, I think there's another conversation that we probably need to have here, slightly apart from the plagiarism conversation, about where Margaret Wente sits in the ecosystem She's in a very unique place in Canadian media. She has a slightly different role than every other columnist in Canadian media. And I think a lot of the stuff that's nebulous or gray zone comes directly from where she sits in that ecosystem. I mean, most columnists kind of have a beat or they have a couple of horses or stables that they go back to to sort of keep the content churn relatively fresh. I mean, I, for example, will write about Alberta politics, Western politics, and then sort of general Alberta news, and then occasionally I'll, I'll write about my latest existential crisis. Those are kind of my stables, right? Wente's niche in the ecosystem appears to me, she's almost a curator, as in her job is to try and find highbrow, boomer-centric, contrarian views from the New York Times or Slate or whatever, 
and to try and repurpose those views for an audience that is overwhelmingly wealthy, that is of the same demographic that she is. If you were going to a, um, a nice dinner party in a nice part of Toronto and you were trying to stock up on intelligent conversation pieces, Wente is essentially Cole's notes for you, right? I mean, she, she, she provides you with the, the right kinds of dinner entertainment. She's BuzzFeed for boomers, you're saying. No, you're being too generous because she's not just e- equipping you with witty little uh, observations. She comforts the comfortable. She is giving you arguments that support you not doing anything and not caring about anything. So to people who say, oh, no one would be piling up on her if it was a different columnist, if it was Tabitha Southey, and that's absolutely true. The reason is that Wente is in the business of discrediting her ideological opponents. She is in the business of disenfranchising people who she thinks shouldn't really have a voice. She's in the business of debunking ideas that she thinks are silly and when you discover that the way that she builds those arguments is by stealing examples, stealing language from other people, that sometimes it doesn't even seem that she understands what she's stealing. Yes, that is more outrageous and egregious than the technical crime of, you know, neglecting to put quotation marks around something or rephrasing it slightly. So now you're admitting that part of the reason why you're targeting Wente here is because of what she writes as opposed to the technical crime that she's actually committing. That, I think, is interesting to note, but I would kind of disagree with you on one point, and that is you're giving her more agency than I think that she warrants. I think you're finding malice where I don't actually think malice actually exists in her. I don't think that she's out to discredit her ideological enemies. I don't think she sits at night in her basement being like, how can I get those Occupy protesters? Technically, her arguments are attempts to discredit her ideological opponents. She has written much snide mockery of people like Naomi Klein, you know, and not to defend Naomi Klein, but I mean, that is just sort of like an accurate summary of what she does when she's talking about people like that. I think she has an ideological point of view, just like all columnists have an ideological point of view. And I think she can take a snide tone or snide approach against people to whom she believes deserve it. So do I, by the way. So do I. And I know that that would be a factor. See, that's the thing is, is that she wants to, and, and she did even when she was defending herself the first time, basically say haters are going to hate and don't listen to the technical points they're making about me because they just want to rob me of my voice. They just want to shut me up. You gave her that point and you admitted that point in, in, in what we just said right there. I think she comes by her ideological positions honestly. I think she is reflecting a demographic and a viewpoint to which the globe caters. And I think that she is a curator of these types of thoughts and ideas that is fed back into this fairly comfortable ideological loop. She serves an important role in the ecosystem that she actually exists in. But as a result of that role, she is vulnerable. For someone to come up with the amount of content that she comes up with on the wide range of subject matter she comes up with would either take an astonishingly original thinker and prolific researcher or someone who relies a lot on repackaging more interesting thinkers and works from abroad. And when you're in a place like Canada, where you have a relatively small cultural sphere, but you have access to, you know, the enormous cultural output of the United States, you know, it becomes really easy to become a curator, to to cherry pick ideas like that. I hear you. She's a mashup artist. That's amazing. She is not such a strange miracle of evolution in the ecosystem as as you would suggest. Christy Blatchford is there to tell you that everything is exactly how it should be in the criminal justice system. And Barbara Kay is there to tell you very similar things in an angrier tone about feminists and men's rights and things like that. Barbara Emile, may her columns rest in peace. They're all 
people who I, I think are there to kind of buttress the establishment. And so, I, you know, this, this amazing purpose that she serves in the ecosystem. No, no, I'm not saying she's amazing uh, or unique. I just think people need to be conscious of the role she serves in the ecosystem because I think it's relevant to the conversation about what she's doing and how she's doing it. That's all I'm saying. Let's back up a little bit here and just ask the question that everyone is asking on Twitter and elsewhere. As of this conversation, maybe this will be different by the time this episode is out, how are they not firing her? And I mean, I think that at least three dozen people have said, like, does she have pictures of the Globe and Mail brass in incriminating situations? And I think that not all of them are, are, are joking. A few people suggested to me, oh, it's the union. The union can make it hard to fire somebody. I don't think that they could force a newspaper to continue to publish someone who is bringing down the very credibility that is, I mean, this is the Globe and Mail. Their brand is kind of all they have. Your talent for conspiracy is pretty incredible. I mean, the answer here is very, very easy. She's she's popular. And also, who else does the Globe have on their columnist roster? She's, for better or worse, become the face of the paper. I mean, if you get rid of Wente, who do you got? I mean, you got Tabitha. Tabitha's great. And Jeffrey Simpson and... I'm not going to argue that Jeffrey Simpson is interesting. You're not going to get me there. You start to run into problems real quick if you're the Globe and Mail. You're right. There's no one else interesting to publish in Canada. Their roster's pretty thin. They've invested enormous amount of time and capital into creating a brand around Peggy Wente. And as a result... And as a result of her work as well, she's very, very popular. She speaks to a demographic that the Globe and Mail assiduously courts, and their roster's very thin. I don't know who you replace her with. I don't buy it for a second, and I don't think that that makes me a tinfoil hat wearer. I've heard this a lot. Oh, yeah, she she gets clicks. Clicks are basically worthless now. People think that it's just like a numbers game. If you sell this many papers, if you get this many clicks, that's how many ads you sell. The Globe and Mail is incredibly dependent on its brand in order to get higher CPMs and establish them as a prestige product that is totally based on this idea that you can trust what you read in here, that this is, we have very high standards. It's Canada's New York Times. That is the brand. Last night on As It Happens, we had your favorite journalism professor, John Miller, saying like, yeah, this is the, a cardinal sin of journalism. I would resign if it was me. Unanimously, the wise old people of journalism are saying like, yeah, this is beyond anything that we've seen somebody commit and then survive in any other context, including the Globe and Mail, Jen. Like, let me point out some Globe and Mail history here. Back in 1980, very popular sports writer Dick Beddoes resigned after admitting that he plagiarized a part of a column from a Russell Baker New York Times column. There is a precedent for this at the Globe and Mail. And what everyone is saying and why this is so sickening within the community is that every one of us knows that we wouldn't survive one instance of this kind of plagiarism. No, we wouldn't. I can't believe that she is just so integral to the Globe and Mail's business model. I don't think it's a great conspiracy, but I do know that the Globe and Mail is a family-owned newspaper. And I do know that she's very tight with Philip Crawley, the publisher. I don't know what her relationships are with the Thompsons themselves, the richest family in Canada, but a lot of people are telling me that, that they favor her too. So maybe they just don't care. The Globe and Mail's brand is not just about high quality journalism. It's also about appealing to a certain demographic of people. And do you think that they don't care? I don't think that they care as much as they like Margaret Wente. And when that balance shifts, then she'll be fired. And until that balance shifts, she's safe. 
Good evening. One of the most famous names in Canadian politics had that name 100% cleared in court today. Senator Mike Duffy's fraud trial came to an end. Duffy was found not guilty on all 31 charges in a judgment that took direct aim at the office of former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. So was it all just a dream? What did it all mean, the Duffy trial, Jen? It just feels like a real anticlimax to me. Yeah, okay, so there's a couple of key takeaways from that ruling. One is the absolute unequivocal understanding that the way that the Prime Minister's office operated under Harper, and probably for many years before that, and probably still operates, is pretty dodgy. That office is a political office. It served the political interests of the um, people in power at the time. It was willing to engage in kind of backroom machinations in order to maintain those interests. That was an important takeaway, and I think people need to understand that. The reason why the Duffy trial is basically awful is because it's so goddamn complicated and fraught that, honestly, you have to be really into politics and and followed it very, very carefully to have an informed opinion on it. It was, what, how many months and months and months of this extremely detailed trial and testimony? And then we come out with this ruling... And parts of this ruling are very interesting and have important takeaways from it, but parts of this ruling are freaking bizarre. And, you know, I mean, as I, this ruling was being read out, my Twitter feed was just overloaded with lawyers whose heads were exploding in slow motion over it. While at the same time, I think the judge was quite right to point out the evils of the PIMO, he also completely exonerates Duffy by claiming that Duffy had lost all of his free will. I mean, that's an actual quote. And ca- had capitulated before the evils of the prime minister's office. The judge claimed that Duffy was forced into taking a $90,000 check to clear expenses that he had claimed wrongly against the taxpayer. And therefore, Duffy was this great innocent victim of all of this. But no no one thinks that. Nobody who was watching the trial thinks that. I mean, Duffy's own lawyer negotiated for that check. Come on! And also, Duffy was a sitting senator. You, You can't get rid of sitting senators. He had a power base within the system that was untouchable and the PMO couldn't have affected. The worst the PMO could have done to him was to let him hang publicly, which is ultimately what they should have done. The other mind-blowing part of all of this is that the Conservative Party was going to pay Duffy's dodgy expenses up to about $30,000 because Duffy was kind of like, well, I wrecked this up, you know, campaigning for you and blah, 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 blah. And then when found out that the $30,000 expenses was a $90,000 expense, was like, no, screw you, we're going to let you hang, which is what they absolutely should have done, except that then Nigel Wright, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, then steps in and says, well, no, this is essentially going to look really bad, it's going to open up a whole big can of worms about Senate residency and Senate expense scandals, and shoot, this is just going to be a giant mess. Here, Duffy, just take your $90,000 checks out of my personal bank account, pay off the taxpayers, Everybody's happy. The taxpayer's been paid off. This whole problem goes away. Once we lean on the accounting firm and cover it up. Yeah, no question. We'll just lean on the accounting firm to clean it all. What a tire fire mess. Everybody here looks bad. The Senate looks bad. Duffy looks bad. Pimo looks bad. Harper, by extension, kind of looks bad. Nigel Wright looks bad. Everybody looks bad in this trial. Now we know that. So that's useful. It is, but we don't really know. We don't. We don't really know what happened. I mean, no, we okay, do know what happened. Me, we know exactly what happened. I don't think we do. Didn't I just explain what happened? We don't know why the RCMP only charged Duffy. How do you charge Duffy for taking a bribe and not charge Nigel Wright 
forgiving one. Well, and here we have the opposite problem now, because now the judge decided that Duffy did not have the criminal intent to take the bribe and was therefore innocent of taking a bribe. It wasn't a bribe. So if Duffy is innocent of taking the bribe, how do you charge Nigel Wright with giving one? But I'm, I'm just so curious. Look, here's the thing, okay? And, I, and I, I'm going to broaden this because it, it's... Uh, Duffy and Gameshi, there's fatigue. Nobody wants to hear those names anymore. We're fed up. And it's the product of a trial because the trial, like media loves it. It's all public. You get to sit there. Everything is put before you as a public court document. You report on it every day and, and, and the narrative has a conclusion. There's a verdict. By the end of it, nobody in the public wants to hear anything. There's a sense of finality. It's over. Neither story is over. And I'm not even talking about the implications or the analysis. I don't have a clear narrative. In both cases, the trial actually distracted from the most important questions about what actually happened. In the case of Gameshi, we became totally wrapped up in, on both sides of it, is this about feminism and sexual abuse writ large, or is it about these particular witnesses and are they lying or don't they remember and what is normal victim behavior and all these personalities? Meanwhile... What is the actual story of this guy who over a course of decades racked up a couple of dozen and counting accusers? I know that there are more people out there who haven't come forward. Kevin Donovan last weekend, kind of buried in a story, revealed another one, a woman who says that he choked her. The trial almost distracted us from knowing what happened and then what it means. Duffy, we got wrapped up in, oh, his personal trainer and the makeup artist and this and that and the check. What it suggests to me when you have the PMO leaning on Deloitte the way that they did. When you have the RCMP and the Crown doing exactly what you would imagine Harper would want them to do and not going after other senators and not going after Nigel Wright, that suggests to me that this prime minister's office, I think it's reasonable to wonder what else they were up to. Who else did they pressure during that administration? What other transgressions were just commonplace? Because they did conspire to do all this and to cover it up in a way that was kind of brazen and makes me wonder what else they were up to. And now nobody wants to hear it anymore. And like, is there a single journalist in Canada who's trying to answer those questions regarding Duffy? That's a very big question. Very broad questions. I mean, you know, short of a royal inquiry into the Harper era, there's probably not going to be... Isn't that a terrific idea? If there was like rampant abuse of that office, overextension of power, corruption, isn't that substance for an inquiry? Well, I think if we're going to go and talk about the PIMO's office, and we're going to talk about an inquiry, we got to go further than Harper. We have to really look at how what role this office has played in politics in Canada for the last several decades. Absolutely, which is why the current PMO might not want to do that as well, right? Exactly. I mean, what role does this office play? To what extent does it or should it be serving the public as opposed to its political masters? I think those are all very, very valid questions. I don't think those questions should stop with Harper. I think that those questions should go back a very long time. Because I don't think that the PIMO was invented by Harper, nor do I think that it developed the culture it did in the last five years. I think that that is a long, long-standing process. And I think that there are some really valid concerns to come out of this trial under Harper's era, but I think also preceding Harper's era. I would love to see somebody dig into this. They can leave the name Duffy out of it if that'll help uh, solve the story to an editor. But I, I think that this isn't done yet. Well, yeah, but I mean, the, the issue you're going to run into is that just about everything that goes on into that office is, is relatively privileged. I don't know quite how access to information works when it comes to the PIMO, but I think that you have a certain degree of cabinet privilege at play there. As I said, short of a kind of a larger inquiry, y y y a lot of that stuff's going to stay buried, I'm afraid. So, you know, I don't think that anybody wants a prime minister's office that 
operates in this way. I think with the benefit of hindsight, it's pretty easy to see what the Pimo should have done. Pimo should have let the Senate hang, and they should have let Duffy hang, and they should have just walked away and not tried to save any of these people, and not try to meddle in any reports or meddle in any in, in any of the committee stuff. That would have been the politically smart thing to do, and it would have been the ethical thing to do, and it would have been the legal thing to do. I think that we have to be careful about assuming that the Prime Minister or the, the Prime Minister's office is pulling strings at the RCMP. I don't have any evidence of that, and neither do you. I mean, a lot of people were wondering, how do you charge Duffy for taking a bribe but not Nigel Wright for giving one? I think that the question or the issue at the time was a matter of criminal intent. It's not just enough to hand someone money and say it's a bribe. You actually have to have a criminal intent behind that. And I think at the time of charging, there wasn't enough evidence to show that Wright had that criminal intent. Is there enough evidence now? Well, again, you're, you're going to have a hard time proving that because if Duffy didn't have the criminal intent in taking the money, you're going to have a hard time saying that Wright had the criminal intent in giving it. So you, you run into the opposite problem. My suspicion is that this ruling has so many weird things in it that it's a bit of a tire fire in and of itself. I think it probably would be a good candidate for appeal, but I don't know that. And I just think nobody wants to touch it anymore because this whole thing is just such a giant political mess for um, you know a government that's no longer in power. There's no political gain in continuing to pursue this for anybody. And as a result, I think that a lot of people are just going to let this stand and walk away. You know, I don't have any evidence that the RCMP was influenced by Harper. You don't have any evidence that they weren't. I think what we both have and should have are questions. Absence of evidence is not evidence of... Av- of. Absolutely. And evidence is only really of issue here if we're trying to make a case. I think we're still at discovery. What happened? It seems like you're right. It's not politically advantageous for anybody in the system to be asking those questions. It sounds to me like a job for journalism. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I would love to have a really, really brilliant investigative journalist spend five years sort of digging into this. That would be fantastic. I think that there are some political and legal obstacles there that are probably insurmountable. My guess is that if a lot of these questions are going to be answered, they're not going to be answered by journalists. They're probably going to be answered by internal inquiries. Oh, that is terrifying. Look, whoever said that investigating the prime minister's office was going to be easy, but I think that it's, there's a big story there. For somebody. Before we go, Jen, I have a public apology to make. You a public apology? I am shocked. I have uh, a listener. It wasn't even one of these situations where like tons of listeners are clamoring for me to apologize. There's one listener who uh, said, you know what? I'm serious. I want you to apologize for this thing you said. The thing that offended him was uh, last episode of Canada Land. I was talking about Newfoundland, a sunshine list, and I referred to it as a list of people who make over $100,000 and who are at the public trough. And he said, look, I'm a, I'm a university professor. I'm paid with public funds. What's your fucking problem with people who are paid with public funds? Why would you use such a pejorative turn of phrase such a, as, as at the public trough? And he didn't say this, but of course the implication is who, who feeds it a trough? Pigs. And at first I'm like, oh, come on. I rolled my eyes at this complaint. And then I realized... I actually had no interest or will or intent to say anything ill of public servants at all. I was just using hackneyed, cliched language. I was just searching for like, what do you call somebody who's paid with public money? Oh, at the public trough, because I've heard that a thousand times. And for me, it's a lesson in why do we not use cliched language and hackneyed language? I mean, yeah, we want to sound good and not just be lazy thinkers and speakers, but also your meaning kind of can get screwed up because I'm happy to offend people who I'm trying to offend, but I have no problem with university professors or firefighters, and I want to apologize for all of them for the public trough comment. 
Magic Handle and Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sorry if you didn't. You can email me uh, at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Jen, where can people find you? Please don't. Please don't find me. Um, uh, Twitter at jengerson.com. No, Twitter at jengerson. There we go. J-E-N-G-E-R-S-O-N. But don't. You don't need to. You don't need to find me. I'm fine. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. If you live in Victoria, British Columbia, I will be coming to your town to do a Canada Land live taping next week, Thursday, May 5th. Check out our Facebook page for ticket details. The next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. I make this show with Kevin Sexton. If you like what we do, please support us. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.